Hi, I'm Wendy Sheridan. <laughs> and I am Robin Renday. Welcome to the Leftscape 100th episode celebration. We just hit 100 episodes this past Wednesday, and we just wanted to do something to mark the occasion. So in case you're checking us out for the first time, the Leftscape is a podcast featuring interviews, commentary, culture, and current events from a progressive perspective. And we talk to guests from many disciplines and walks of life, activism, music, STEM, spirituality, and much more. We have a few of our show guests here this evening and some of our patrons, and we're excited to have everyone with us. If you're watching us live on Facebook, you know you can find us there at facebook.com slash leftscape. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Leftscape. Our episodes come out every other Wednesday, and you can download them wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen online at leftscape.com. And while you're on the site, sign up for our newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout, to keep up with all that we have going on. We also have a Patreon where you can support the show and listen to our special segment, We Should Be Recording This, and snag some cool perks as well. And that is at patreon.com slash leftscape. Yes. So I would like to introduce everybody on the call tonight. I'm going to start with Cedric Maurice. Cedric Maurice is a social activist, writer, artist, and secular ministry a minister currently in the Boston area. And we spoke to him on episode 17, which is called Buy in the World. And tonight he's going to tell us a bit about his forthcoming podcast, which is called Black Fluidity by Black Men Talk. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I didn't know. I was just jumping right in here. You know? Well, I think we're going to introduce everyone here and then we'll get to you. Then you'll jump in. Excellent. Excellent. Then well, then, jump. hello. Thank you. Sure. I would like to introduce science educator, writer, and musician J.D. Stillwater. Wave and say hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> He was featured on episode 79, The End of Certainty, where he shared knowledge and wisdom on life, the universe, and everything. He's currently working on a book, Implications, the Interfaith Promise of Science. Very cool. And John Todd is in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he is a men's group facilitator, among many other awesome things, but he's here to sort of talk about that tonight and give us an update on the growth and, of his group and its process. Hey, everybody. I'm John. Good yeah. to be here. Very cool. And we've got some patrons here hanging out. We've got Johnny. Hello. And AJ, who is in hiding and just sort of chilling out. And Lawrence Peters. So hello, everybody. Hi, Brian is watching from Facebook. He just waved. Oh, okay. very cool. <laughs> I'm, keeping an, I'm keeping an eye on the Facebook chat. That's sort of my secondary job. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, so we wanted to talk with our, some of our previous show guests to just celebrate. We've had so many, just so many amazing conversations over this time frame. We started this podcast in 2018 and just want to hear from some folks and then we're going to go into a ask us anything. So if you have questions for us and want to post them on Facebook, let us know and we'll, we'll try to get to you know, we've got, a, we've got a few already, and uh, we'll get to some, and it'll be fun. Uh, silly, serious, whatever you got. <laughs> Let's go to Cedric Morris. What, what would you like to tell us this evening? Well, you started off. Hello, everyone. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. I love your podcast, and it's always refreshing. You guys have such a vibrant energy. It's always interesting and, and lively, and I always learn something. You know, there's always these little tidbits that I can walk away with, especially from Wendy. Wendy's always like coming up with these <laughs> sort of interesting things that you just don't know about. And you're like, what, really? <laughs> like leaf sheep and manatees or? <laughs> yeah, the, ma the manapoots, the ma no, manatoots. That was, that was so delightful. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the invitation. And of course, you know, what I've been working on was the bi or is the bifluidity by Black Men Talk. It's just me and another guy, Frank. Frank and I have come together essentially to bring a fluid, a bi-black fluid perspective to just whatever we're talking about. You know, we've only done one episode so far. And of course, we're working on increasing our episodes 
And our season, if you will, we plan on doing like five episodes and then we'll release them all at the same time. So look forward to that coming. And we still have social media businesses to, to strategize. So all of the things, you know, is happening with that. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I wish I had a clip of it that I could let you guys listen to, but I haven't, even though I've started editing on it, I haven't like broken it up into any sound bites or anything like that yet. But we're working on it. Cool. You went mute, Robin. Yep. What is your um, co-host name again? Frank. Okay. I can't think of what Frank's last name is, you know, he just introduced himself as Frank. <laughs> He's works. a great guy. He's a great guy. He's out of Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. And contrary to what you know, it's my, very talkative and energetic persona. Frank is very somber and very serious. And, you know, so there's kind of a, a yin yang balance that we have going on there. Very cool. Yeah, well, yeah. Can you sort of give a little bit of a, I don't know, a little synopsis of what is the power in what you're talking about or the importance of what sort of drove you to do that, this topic? Well, what moved me to, to get into it was essentially I disconnected my external drive. But what moved me to talk about it or create the podcast was basically the absence of, of bi black voices in the bi community. You know, I've been around since the 90s and everything. And, you know, so many bi black men, I've met thousands across the years. And even with that said, with publications, with the work that bi black men have contributed to the Bi movement, brothers like Dr. Farajaje Jones, Christopher Dadafume, Brother Harakuti, you know, people have been out there doing the work and everything. And even with that, oftentimes bi Black Bi men are pathologized and stigmatized and ignored in terms of the accomplishments and the work, the contributions that we actually bring to the Bi community. And that frustrates me, not hearing those voices. And so my intention is to focus on issues that are relevant to all bisexual men, but to do it through the lens and, and cultural perspective of bi-Black fluid African-descended men or African-descended male-identified men, because <laughs> we're open to trans community as well, so trans men as well. Very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. So we anticipate having members from the, we want to focus on other bisexual Black men and give them a platform to speak and to showcase their work. But there are other men like the scientist Justin Miller, who wrote the book, I'm going to mangle the title, but the fantasy book, does anyone know what I'm talking mm. about? I'll have to be, so I'm make sorry. Me Google. Yeah, but he wrote, <laughs> he wrote the book on what people want, which okay. is about fantasies across the country. All right, I'll look, I'll look it up later. I don't want to give you dead time or anything. But right. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I'm hoping to have people like him, people who contribute to the community on as well. So it could even be you guys, you know, that and women too. That would be cool. Yeah, so, if you yeah. want some non-binary, bi black person on there I'm your, I'm your person so <laughs> exactly well and see that's the thing like you know we often hear about like when we hear about by men in general we hear about by men specifically and what people think about by men seldom do we hear about by men from by men who are living in their lives and in their skins you know and then the women who date by men who are actually in relationships and you know, mixed orientation relationships with bi black men or the men who are dating bi black men, you know, these are also people that we want to hear from. This is very cool. So you're going to send us your, oh, you know, absolutely. your view, you'll, you'll get a broadcast to the world, right? So absolutely, absolutely. You know, we're planning a media strategy now in terms of getting the word out. And right now, you're my first stop, Robin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so anybody, so thank you. Sure. Yeah, ask me anything. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ask ask female anything. <laughs> you have any questions or thoughts or? I can tell you this. One of the segments of our show is we do what we call the by fire round, where we ask each other any kind of question, any kind of question we feel like asking. And when we ask the question, the only way that you have to get out of answering the question is to say a safe word. So you have to establish your safe word in the very <laughs> beginning. <laughs> that 
that's cool. You have to establish your safe word in the very beginning. And then, you know, if you feel so inclined where you have to use your safe word, that tells us a lot about what's going, you know. <laughs> right. So do you have you do you have one safe word per episode or like your safe word is your safe word? Yeah, well, we, well, we chose different safe words for our very first episode, of course, okay. but we, we're, we're hoping to, to get some interesting safe words from our upcoming guests as well. Yeah. Very cool. And this yeah. is Black Fluidity by Black Men Speak, right? Yes. That's it. Yes. Very, Black very Fluidity good. by Black right. Men Speak. I, I have a question. Are you going to do like what Groucho Marx did in You Bet Your Life? <laughs> And say the secret pat <laughs> the secret safe word and <laughs> oh yeah and people the duck comes down and <laughs> oh no <laughs> no folks will just say what their safe oh, word okay. is and then like you know if I was going to ask you a question you know we have five questions in the by fire round and then I will have the questions you don't know the questions until the round starts and I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to tell us what your what your safe uh -huh. word is. And then we start the fire round. And if you use your safe word, the fact that you have to use a safe word, that alone tells us a lot about you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I like this. This is, this is very cool. We, we, we took a while developing our segments. And this, this is a very cool one to start out of the gate, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> JD, I have, you have a question for you, Simo. Yeah. Um, when you were introduced, you were introduced as a secular minister. I've never heard that term. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? <clears throat> well, I am an interfaith minister, an ordained interfaith minister through One Spirit Interfaith there in New York, and also attended the Unification Theological Seminary also in New York. Part of the reason that I would refer to myself as a secular minister is because I don't particularly feel called to a pulpit. But as you know, a calling can happen anytime. So I don't, though I don't feel a particular calling to a pulpit, I don't rule that out. You know, it's not something that's ruled out. And the way that I minister to the world is casually. So I minister to individuals through not only role modeling, but through consultation. People call me in order to inquire about that. Da, da, da. People share things with me about their struggles and what they're trying to get to in their life, their goals. I share resources and I utilize social media and typical platforms that anybody might encounter rather than me advocating or pushing forth one God concept. You know, I speak about the divine. I can relate to people in terms of Buddhism, Tantra, sciences, Hindi, various Hindi traditions, Obviously, Christianity, I say Christianity because we're living in a Christian society, more or less here in America, and Islam to some extent. So, you know, these various traditions I'm able to speak to people about collectively. So rather than me saying, well, I'm a Christian minister, and then having people expect me to always quote scripture from the Bible, I acknowledge the fact that I'm a secular minister, and where I draw strength from may not be a religious tome at all. Thank you. That's very interesting. Yes, very good. So, uh, any other questions, or should we move to our next? Do I get to ask a question? Yeah. Well, I can wait. I'll wait. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. I'll wait. You can ask me. I'll, get, I'll wait until oh. we get to the guy who I want to ask the question of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. There you go. That makes sense. <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Very awesome. Well, JD, I think that might be a good dovetail conversation into what you have to talk about. Robin, when you invited me to do this, you said I would have five minutes. So I'm going to try to condense nine <laughs> years of personal evolution into five minutes. <laughs> I had a feeling this was going to be a challenge for you. <laughs> yeah. For the last nine years, I've been working on a project called Seven Candles. And it actually started when I was teaching high school science way back in the late 1990s. And I was teaching and I started noticing a few simple high school science concepts that felt really important to me, felt profound, implications of, you know, basic science facts. And I've started to call them revelations. And just for one example, you know, from genetics, if you, if, if you and I are cousins and we look at our genetic sequences, you can tell pretty quickly with pretty easy experiments 
that you and I have a common ancestor two generations previous. Because we're cousins, we have common grandparents. Well, if you do that with people from all over the world, you can very quickly and very simply demonstrate that every person in the world shares a common ancestor. And there are various ways of doing this using different chunks of human DNA. One of them is mitochondrial DNA, and that shows that we have a common grandmother from 200,000 years ago. Every person on the planet shares this common grandmother. And, you know, you, you mentioned that to a genetist. Yeah, so, you know, of course, that's just what we find in genetics. For me, I realize that, and I think, but wait, that means that you and I are cousins. We have a great-grandmother in common. And so there's the science fact, but then taking that and considering the implications of it means that, that I'm stepping away from science a little bit, and I'm making meaning from it. So if you and I are cousins, then any sort of values or traditions that you have around family, how you interact with cousins, fall into place as soon as you understand that, that we are cousins. Distant cousins, but still cousins. So that meaning-making step is spirituality. So spirituality, as I use it in my work, has to do with those things that connect us to the profound and the sacred and the meanings that we make from information that we get. So I'm teaching high school science and I'm finding all these different things like that, science facts with implications. And I started just making a list and I found dozens of them. So in 2012, I started what I call the Seven Candles Project. And at first, it was just a multimedia presentation focused on those revelations, focused on the wow of it all. So I gave talks all over the country in churches and colleges and yoga festivals, wherever they would have me. And as I did this work, I started to notice some threads that kind of weave through these, these wow-inducing revelations. Threads like humility, and cooperation, and interconnection. So for just one example, in the, in the field of ecology, there is no such thing as rugged independence. There are no creatures on this planet that pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Everything is completely dependent on other living things and the non-living parts of the earth. And that has implications for the way we treat each other and the way we treat the earth. And obviously it has political implications. So science itself is atheistic because, you know, science, we can't measure or do experiments on the supernatural. And I guess we can't really, science can't say anything about the supernatural. So maybe it's more, more accurate to say science is agnostic. Scientists, however, come from all the various faith traditions on the planet. And they, they do science together, at, you know, not as part of their faith, but alongside their faith. So the findings of science are available for everyone to make meaning from, because we can all look at the evidence and, and draw our own conclusions from it. And those conclusions are communal, they're, they're global community. So there's this huge promise in science to unify humanity. Tremendous opportunity for unity around the findings of science. And, and this is happening at the same time that we're facing self-extinction from our arrogance and our unwillingness to take some of those lessons like humility and interdependence. So uh, I spent the, most of my free time the last 18 months sort of gathering those threads together into a book, Implications. The, in, the working title is Implications, the Interfaith Promise of Science. And my dream is to unite the world's religions around a common holy scripture, natural reality as it's described by science. Just, just imagine a global religious holiday called One Family Day, where Irish Catholics and Protestants exchange gifts with each other like the close cousins that they are, while South Asian Muslims and Hindus meet for coffee and conversation, again, affirming their bonds of kinship and interdependence against all historical odds. So if there ever is to be a common scripture for everyone to find profound spiritual inspiration, to me it seems like the most promising thing is the natural universe that we all share and that we explore together as one human family. And there's just a vast abundance of wonders and inspiration to draw from in there. 
So that's my story and my dream, and I really appreciate the chance to share it and talk about it a little bit. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. Do you have a thought, Wendy? I, I, I kind of remember being able to be that idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> it is a beautiful dream that you have. But I'm also thinking about my close cousins. <laughs> I well, have kind of a fraught relationship with them. Yeah, yeah, the culture <laughs> wars. The culture wars have really made it difficult for people to have those conversations. But I get a little bit of reassurance from recognizing that only about 300 years ago, they tried to kill Gal Galileo simply for saying that the Earth is round and orbits the sun. So <sighs> my dream is not that this is going to happen in my lifetime. Oh, okay. My, my dream is that instead of taking 300 years, it'll take three generations, you know, 60 or 70 years. And, you know, evolution, yeah. Can I ask how your ch uh, students have reacted to this? Because uh, you're a teacher, and you probably are really good at doing this, of uh, presenting the information. Do they have some startling reactions and interesting thoughts? To some extent, but students, high school students, aren't yet as cynical as many of us adults are. And so they take some of these implications just in stride. To them, it's just part wow. of your science class. So that's cool. When I was doing Seven Candles much more regularly, of course, the pandemic interrupted that somewhat. I found that, that college students and high school students resonated the best because they had just learned this stuff. It wasn't part of their ancient educational history. They really understand things like genetics. Do they begin questioning religious beliefs that you know, somehow or other, why should we be segmented into these different uh, you know, religious religions? And how did we get to this place where we're so unable to identify our own species, basically? We're unable to share this kind of common thread of humanity. We're, we're unable to re recognize the humanity in everybody. How did we reach that point? There's a lot of questions in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think scientists are partly to blame. We have allowed people to be spokespeople for science that make claims about the non-existence of the supernatural that aren't evidence-based. You know, science is agnostic. Science does not say there's no God. There's no, you know, science can't say anything about God. So, uh, yeah. I've, I don't think there's any good reason, there's no evidence-based reason for us to continue to argue. In fact, you know, the question in the culture wars is, do you believe in God? And I just think that's the wrong question. The question should be, how do we relate with the world around us, the human world and also the natural world? And how do we relate to that which we consider to be the most sacred and, and profound, the divine as we de define that? And if we talk about relationships, our relationship with those things, we can find common ground a lot quicker. And, and there's no real fruit from arguing about whether there's a supernatural realm or not. It's just an argument that never ends. J.D., I'm curious, you, you were talking about the kind of theoretical that if, if we can all connect on the science, we can all sort of, like all the different religions can kind of come together and agree about our common natural connections. I'm, I'm curious, what kind of connections have you actually experienced between scientists from different religions? Like, is there any way that they, they kind of make connections spiritually by doing the work of science together? Yeah, I don't think it has to be anything technological or complicated. I think when people of any religion get a chance to, to look at a desert sky at night, when it's really clear and the stars are just so numerous and crystalline, that is a spiritual experience. If you've ever had that, you know what I'm talking about. So when you're out there in the desert lying on the ground together looking at those stars, it does not matter what your theological dogma is. It just doesn't. It evaporates in the awesomeness of creation. The thing that I like about what you're saying is that I think there is... Well, there's, there's a couple of things. I, I think that a lot of people have challenges around scientists saying anything at all about any of that. And you should just stick to the numbers or whatever. You know what I mean? Name. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> but I do think that human beings have a need and a desire 
for all for that experience, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of we've made up a lot of stories around that simplicity. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I think I think they have value. Some a lot of those stories have values from for me. I like ritual and I like doing things that bring me to a certain kind of experience, but it's ultimately not necessary, really. Like just sort of being is what matters, you know? Well, yeah. So I think there's, you know, I, I, I do think there's a potential. In that. I mean, I think that, I mean, Wendy and I, I, paganism is really approaching that kind of an idea that you're really connecting with nature and working with those, those elements, you know? But those are also very segmented and everyone has their way of doing it. That's very specific, you know? Yeah. But it doesn't have, it doesn't have to. And I, I, and I'm both challenged and inspired by what you're doing because part of me says like, I love, I like science to not have to, as you said, it, it doesn't necessarily deal with those, that realm at all. And I kind of like it that way sometimes, you know, mostly, but because I think you can run into a place of, saying too much like saying that science proves the rule of you know the law of attraction or something like that which i think is not accurate <laughs> but i don't think that's what you're saying you know what yeah. i mean but i do think people use science to to misdirect or to even you know or to justify anything as they, they do with religion with religion yes yes <laughs> yeah that's true kinda... which is what i wanted to ask about like i i get I get the the essential concept of of looking at religion across the board and finding those essential elements, like with Houston Smith, you know, just finding those essential commonalities between all of the faiths. But one of the things that we tend to neglect to do is to look at the perversion of faith and the perversion of science, right? So how do we rec- how do we get to the place? where we can share a common value, right? When we have what we consider to be educational stables that teach perversion of science and perversion of religion in pseudo-scientific ways, mm-hmm. right? Like the kind, like, you know, not to throw a bombshell into any of this, but, you know, like when you start talking about, if we're talking religion, when you start talking about the use for religion, the use of religion and science to justify slavery, you know, across the globe, or when you use religion and science to distort and separate humanity into these little cubbyholes of of so-called race, right? And then to make these distinctions that are based upon geographical elements and geographical change, and make them priorities of different races and then categorically assign people statuses of life and living based upon those things. How do we get to the place where we can experience commonality when we can't get away from hundreds of years of social indoctrination with things like that? And those sort of systemic values that our children pick up just when we take them to church on Sunday and, let, and trust them to go away with the Sunday school teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, none of our human institutions operates perfectly, full stop. <laughs> One thing that's a little reassuring to me is that in the last hundred years, the various science disciplines have, have grown what's known about the natural world to the point of overlap. And that makes it harder for people to pervert one, one branch of science. So, you know, for example, and this isn't really to your point, but it, it may illustrate what I'm trying to get at here. When you were taking high school science, if you had asked your science teacher, where did all these elements come from? They could not have told you. But now the astrophysicists, the, the astronomers and the physicists and the cosmologists and the nuclear scientists and the chemists have, have put together a story that tells us where these things came from. And similarly, when we're talking about human biology and human consciousness and human physiology, we know enough. There are still huge mysteries and gaps, like, you know, how does consciousness arise? But what we do know makes it harder for people to take a little piece and, and, and misuse it for political or oppressive ends. Because, you know, there are a lot more scientists involved 
in understanding that at a, a deeper level and can say, oh, no, that's not what we find. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. And I certainly applaud, as Wendy was just saying, you know, I certainly applaud the nature of what you're striving for. You know, I think that that's admirable. And we have to start somewhere, right? We have to start somewhere. And I think that we're probably in a a better state than we have ever been in terms of having access to knowledge and access to truth. But it also, you know, I work in technology and I work in healthcare. And when I speak with young doctors and I speak with older doctors as well, and I understand that some of these medical professionals are still being taught that Black people endure pain at a higher level than white people, that we don't, we can't be believed when we say that we're in pain, that our skin is tougher than other people's skin. You know, when I look at the disparities in healthcare based solely upon medical professionals' belief that Black bodies are somehow different and should be treated differently than white bodies. Those are the kinds of things that create despair and anxiety for me because that's ongoing. And we have, like we just pointed out, we have unfettered access to the truth. And yet in these institutions, healthcare, politics, academics, science, religion, we're still getting these lies that feed into a systemic system that puts us at odds with one another. And today there's no excuse. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is a frustrating and scary thought. Honestly, that has been my biggest fear about getting COVID. Just that I have heard of the disparity of outcomes and the, the idea that someone, I could be not able to breathe and someone wouldn't believe me or something like that. Like that's really terrifying. And it, it got into my head you know, so it's, it's, that is a real thing. And also, I mean, I also having a background in science too, like I know that there's pure science and there are people who know the truth about, uh, you know, all the things that we talk about in our show, the like race and gender and all those things. And, and the, the, the differences are, are, are so, they're, they're really, you know, race isn't really a thing, you know, ultimately. And gender is so, so diverse and, and, that certainly doesn't shouldn't be affecting uh, the way you treat someone around health care issues or any of those things. How do we get that to filter down to regular people and and even doctors who are you know should know? I don't know that answer, but I think talking about it and getting stuff out there is certainly the beginning of it. I don't know, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful too. I don't know. I can't put a timeline on it, but I'm glad that we. Gene Roddenberry tried to put a timeline on it. Because more, the more I I've been thinking about your vision of, of the planet of cousins, it really reminds me of the early Star Trek utopia, just for the humans in the Federation. Mm-hmm. It's like the humans got their shit together and then they're interacting with the other alien races like we are with, you know, our other, you know, it's at the analogy. But the humans on planet Earth... I think we're trying, we're living like what you were describing, you know, and that's kind of in, in my head, that would be some of the ways to get this idea out in the world is through media. Your book is one, but also the more, the more you can show people to model the behavior. So it's like a TV show or a movie or something that where this is just, the normal way people are living. And then it helps get the idea out into the, it's got to get into the zeitgeist before anybody is going to even attempt this. And, you know, we have, and it, it, you know, it will be the young people because old people like me are like, yes, this is very well, but we're all thinking about, you know, the 50 billion ways other people will try to stop it or you know you know if somebody can't figure out how to make money on it it's you know (laughs) that that's like gonna make it harder to do yeah i mean i would i would love it if people would get it through their heads that life isn't a zero-sum game (laughs) that's like step one it's like this is not pie you don't have to have all of it 
<laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, JD. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm looking forward to what everybody looking, has to say. I'm looking yeah. forward to reading your book when it comes out. <laughs> I haven't. I don't have a timeline yet. It's in editing. Wendy knows the books are a long ass process. I do. I do know <laughs> very much. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was about to say is that I think working in small groups is where we can start to experience that kind of connection that we need to, to, you know, eventually, you know, we have this idea of like world communities that are are much broader communities that have this kind of cohesion and understanding. And I've found that that small communities, I like, I belong to several different communities of friends that are really dedicated to a kind of connection and openness and depth, which leads very well to John Todd's conversation, I think. So would you like to tell us about your group and what you've got going on? I've noticed in, in a lot of social groups, Robin, like that thing when you have more than eight humans in a collective conversation, you, you risk losing the, the intimacy, if that makes any sense. Okay. I think, I think it's, it's the reason our kindergarten teachers put us in like small groups. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, so, so I, maybe a little intro about your men's group and yeah. where it's came from, what it's doing now. Um, I think I went, I, I probably told you hours of this, but years and years ago, a friend of mine and I were reading a book that was designed to communicate to men, um, hey, one of your 20th century complaints, the cause of it might be that you've been culturally conditioned to treat every woman in your life like you, like your mother. And guess what? That doesn't work with the women you work with, the women you date, the women you marry. This might you know, fix that, and that might you know, cure a lot of your relationship stuff. And the focus of it was essentially men learning to do their own emotional labor, which is a really big topic nowadays and wasn't such a big topic a decade ago when the book was written. No. So I was kind of like, wow, because you pick up this book and it's like, it looks like a my dating life sucks. How do I get better book? but it isn't. It's like, like the end piece is form better connections with the men in your life, get comfortable, get intimate, be vulnerable, learn to do your own emotional heavy lifting and stop making the women in your life do it. And guess what? A lot of relationships will get better if you just do that. And we started this book and thought, well, shit, let's do it. I rounded up a group of guys I knew and have continued to wrangle up people as people have moved on or different priorities have shifted. What's interesting is you get a group of people together, no matter what your initial intention is, people show up with new tools that you didn't expect. And everybody has different stories and experiences. And it's become a really interesting place. We kind of set up the rules in the beginning to create a, like a safe container. So whatever you want to talk about, it's not leaving this space. If somebody wants to speak anecdotally about something they heard. They asked permission. They would not mention names of people, but sort of tell things anecdotally. I mean, I think an expectation is for people who are partnered, you're probably going to want to talk to your partner about the things we talk about. But we've been doing this for about six years and it has gone from that, which was super useful as sort of a stepping stone to a place for practicing active listening, teaching the skills of empathy, vulnerability in the very much of the Brene Brown school and has really informed a large number of the members that most of the problems we run into look a little different once you look at them through a trauma-informed lens. Hmm. So that in a nutshell is men's group. And I've spent the last five or six years sort of running it and managing it and also noticing other men's groups showing up on the global stage, on the national stage, all over the place. And it occurs to me, this is something that our species is processing as hard as it can. You know, we've had a lot of things happen in the last 40, 50 years. And I think men are getting the memo, hey, I need to work on myself. It would be really good to do that with some other guys. Wow. Because other guys might have some idea what I'm going through. Maybe we can relate to each other. Maybe we can share stories. Maybe, for example, one of the things we've moved to now, just the most, I think the most useful tool in listening 
we've developed a, a three-part answer or response to anybody's anybody's story, which is, would you like to feel heard? Are we troubleshooting? Or do you, would you just like to have your feelings validated? Pick any three. Pick all three if you like. Falls in your court. Just to really cover the bases, or like, I hear you. How do you want to be received? And that's been super useful. I don't know if this is true for all men, but um, I had a, a muscle to flex, which was resisting the urge to fix something when somebody tells you their story. Sometimes people just want you to shut the hell up and listen. They don't need a solution. And so many guys, that's like the go-to reflex. So stuff like that. I don't know. It, Women are like that too, though. What's that? Women, women do that too. I, that was something I had to also flex that or, or train that muscle because I would immediately jump into solving problems. Right. right. And sometimes and it just feels to good to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're working on. That's what we're, we're developing. I've been very slowly kind of writing down some of the processes and exercises and I, I kind of would like to publish them somewhere so people could have access to the tool. I don't know. None of the stuff that we've done would, would work appropriately if delivered with a megaphone. It's very interpersonal work. For example, whenever we have a new person in group, there's a, there's a dynamic shift that occurs because all of a sudden we have a new person in a group of people who all know each other very well and trust each other. Totally changes the dynamic. It's a little messed up, but we've acknowledged that that happens when we involve a new person. It's like, say, this has got to be really weird for you because you know we all know each other. We're all comfortable with each other. But the fact that you're here means that we're a little less comfortable because we don't know you. And just sort of look at that and acknowledge that thing. And people tend to get over it. It's a weird space, though. We've invited people who are very uncomfortable with the level of depth and vulnerability, and they don't come again. And that's good. If it's not good for you, don't don't be here. You know, that's great information. I don't want to. I, I wouldn't want anybody to go into a space of depth and vulnerability without being comfortable, because it's just going to be. It, it it could be very traumatic for them. And one of the things that I, I'm sure women struggle with this too, but my group focuses on is men falling into a defensive response as a result of a shame loop. Everybody understand the words in that sense? Just explain a shame loop. A shame loop. I think I intuitively um, know, but... You do. Somebody <laughs> says something that triggers me into a defensive response because of something I'm ashamed of. It might not be even something I have any ownership of, but if you said something about men or white men or people from Indiana or guys or some, you know, some broad statement, I could go, oh, I'm offended and go looping off into a defensive response. Happens all the time. It's a really common response from all kinds of people, men and women alike. One of the useful pieces at working through a shame loop is something Brene Brown teaches, if everybody knows everybody knows her, shame researcher Brene Brown, is shame resilience, which is the abil- practicing the ability, another muscle to flex, of facing down moments of shame and hanging in there. Because like, I love you guys. I know you're not going to bite my head off. I'm uncomfortable and that's all about me and I'm going to move through it. And you're going to hold me through that just like I would hold you. And we'll get to the other side of it. And it's, there's no foul. I was just uncomfortable, you know. But for a lot of us, I could say even myself a decade ago, I couldn't have done that. Was not capable. Didn't have the tools. I have a question for you. How did you choose or how do you choose who you approach about this group because it feels like not the thing you say to like the average person you meet on the job or whatever, you know what I mean? So do you take chances with people that you suspect would want to be this vulnerable or do you just kind of go for it? How do you, how do you sort of make that? I am a dedicated and admitted extrovert as often as possible. This pandemic has been really, really awful. And there's a little piece of my person that's tucked away suffering in exile. But I like to go out and be social and I like to meet new people. And sometimes I'll lean in a little close and add something a little vulnerable to the conversation and see if they flinch. And if they still are hanging in there, I'll keep going and we'll start talking about who I am and what I do and what's interesting to me. And 
the people who resonate with that go, oh, tell me more. That sounds really cool. And the people who don't are like, oh, I got to go. It's really obvious. Like in the first 30 seconds. So if, you're not, if, if, if you can't handle me with a little bit of vulnerability, we're probably not going to be friends. That's okay. <laughs> That's cool. So yeah, I mean, of I go to meetups I'm... and I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just was going to say, of course, after a statement like that, you know, I have to ask the question, you know, what's an example of something that you might lean in after 30 seconds and share as far as vulnerability goes? Boy, I got to, that's, that's a deep, that's a deep dive. I could talk about polyamory. I could talk about queerness. I could talk about my atheism. I could talk about psychedelics experimentation. I could talk about socialism. I could talk about, I mean, I can, there's, it's, a, I got a lot. I'm kind of a deviant. I'm, okay, I thought I'm a nice guy, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up because I was thinking, you, you know, I'm sitting there and you lean in and tell me what, well, you know, I got a tag on my butt. Um, I was wondering if you might want to look at it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I, That's a really vulnerable moment. You know? <laughs> I actually, in basic training, my, a friend of mine who turned out to be my best buddy, I had to pull a tick off of his asshole. Oh. Yeah, like 19 years old. Hey, can you help? All right. Wait, you said yeah. off the asshole. Yeah. Not the ass, but the oh, yeah. hole mm-hmm. of the ass. Okay. Getting your <laughs> that's we were be- very we were intimate. Our best buddies after that. I was going <laughs> to say, that's intimate. Right life. Yeah. I had a tick on my leg and it was bad enough. <laughs> They're so gross. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. It's like, I can't go to the hospital with this. Can you just look at this thing? And I'm like, all right. Wow. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd be like John Wayne, you know, in the military, walking around with a tick five years in. <laughs> you know what? When you're when you're 19 year old noob cakes in basic training, there's no John Wayne. John Wayne is your teacher. So, any more questions? I think Wendy had some questions about men's group stuff. Yeah, I did. I did. You know, in your interview back in the show, when you when Robin interviewed you, you were talking about in the future inviting women into the group. Yeah. And have you done that, or are you planning to? And where do you meet? <laughs> so we've done it once. Our meeting group just kind of moves around based on the weather. Especially this year with COVID, we were like outdoors only, you know, social distancing, all that. A few of us have nice fire pits, which is kind of tolerable for the middle of January, but not for more than a couple hours with even with bundled up. And it's nice when it can be in somebody's living room with a couple of glasses of wine and some beer and some snacks and everybody's comfortable and not worried about being hungry. It has always been our intention to make the space not entirely male or male presenting or male oriented or however you want to phrase that it is specifically male oriented because it's the, the focus was to help build a tool set that we felt we were lacking and still, still lacking. It's, it's never done, but every woman I've talked to has said, absolutely. Yes. I want to be in that space. I want to see that. <laughs> I want to experience that. And I'm like, that's cool. Your being there will change it. But, my guys are pretty good. They're brave. They're not afraid of shit. You can't scare them anymore. They're fine. They're big. They've gone through some really deep things and come out the other side more relaxed and more comfortable and more confident with who they are. So there's plans. We're still in the middle oh. of COVID though. I, I, I basically to put everything on hold this year as far as anything new happening. My wife just got her second Pfizer shot this morning. I've had both of mine for a couple of weeks. Yes, we can have hugs and cuddles. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm two That's weeks past my second shot yesterday. So, yay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anybody over 50 had access to it, what, a month ago? Most places? Yeah, it was still like getting concert tickets to a yeah, right? concert. <laughs> so, important thing. Anybody who's yes. a veteran, you can walk into any VA clinic. No appointment. Get it. Cool. That is good information. Absolutely. Um, I resonated with some of the small group vulnerability things you were describing because of involvement in the 12-step community. And um, 
that leads me to ask if you sometimes catch yourself walking around going, that guy needs a men's group. <laughs> like, like I do sometimes. That person needs a program. Only you know, all the very fucking time. No, it, <laughs> here's the thing. I mean, walking through my life day to day, one of the strongest things that, that I see resonating in the world when in my contact with other men, and that's at work, at the grocery store, wherever, is male competition dynamic. It is always present. And... I don't think this will ever be a thing that I would want to pulpitize or crusade on or pursue that everybody should experience. Not everybody's ready to be unplugged. We all have decades of cultural conditioning around all sorts of shit. And here we are in the 21st century. We are peeling back gender. We are peeling back sexuality. We are peeling back race. Every time you see somebody have a hard reaction to one of those things, it's because their conditioning is being challenged. Something that they thought was true for the last 40, 50 years has proved to not be true. And on a tribal level, there's a piece of their lizard brain that goes, I'm under attack. When your beliefs are poked at, you, your body, your limbic system takes it as a physical attack. That's why people get so de defensive when you question them on gender, politics, anything. I think that goes a long way to explain January 6th. Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the last four, five years... Yeah. yeah, Donald Trump is a for phenomenal 50 years. example of everything. Like, he's a figurehead for everything wrong with masculinity, including <laughs> the impossible task of reaching that man and ever getting any of that cross to him. Because he just, up oh, shame loop, doubles down every topic. Mm. I think uh, that's exactly right. But we seem to still be in his, uh, you know, there seems to be a lot of people who buy into that. I mean, more people voted for him for the, in the second term than the first term. And people uh, have hurt feelings. And the conditioning, they, they kind of equate conditioning with patriotism and, and America itself. So if your conditioning's under attack, you're, you're, everything's under attack. Right. Make America great again means let's go back to that period where white supremacy was the, 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 the quiet established normal. Quit pointing at that. That makes me uncomfortable. Right. It's like we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, incredible amounts of work. And, and these, uh, you know, bills now coming from the state legislatures to try to prevent transgender people from getting, uh, you know, recognized and so on. And where was, uh, where was that? Was that Alabama? Yeah, there's a few few states I think are. What a fucking surprise! All right, Arkansas, I think. Arkansas, yeah, even better. That's the one with they're not allowed to give kids hormones. Right. I think, right? Well, and they have to stop if a doctor's already administering hormones. I'm they saying they made it illegal. They made it illegal in the middle of treatment. Yeah. Yeah. It's time to move. That's scary. Yeah. We're not going to rescue Arkansas. Do you know their track record on all their other shit? It's Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> but do, you think, do you think this is like the, the fever, you know, basically coming to a head, or are we in for many more years, if not decades, of this male you know, problem, this toxic masculinity? Is toxic masculinity about to kind of crush under its own weight, or and we're going to see something new? What's your feeling? Well, here's, here's the question. If you were, if, imagine you are someone with lots of toxic masculine traits. Which do you think would have a better result? If I beat you up about it, or if I am gentle and point out the error. Because right now we're beating these guys up. And that feels good because they're a bunch of dicks. <laughs> but the thing is, we, we don't need them to die or go away. We need them to get better. Yeah. And I mean, I think back to places in my life where I made lots of mistakes. And the best lessons came when somebody was fucking kind and firm with me. They didn't kiss my ass. But they weren't nasty. They were kind and firm. And anything other, anything, anything less than that? I mean, you got a group of guys who are upset because their supremacy is being challenged. They like guns. They want America to be the way it was. They have enjoyed the trappings of patriarchy forever. There's a lot to, lot to fight against. And if you point at any one of those things, 
there's a shame loop in it. And the result of a shame loop is always going to be defensiveness. So I don't like them either. I wish we could just give them their... Here, you guys take Texas. We're going to be over here. Just <laughs> go for it. Segregate them. I don't want it. But the reality is, is we need them to behave better. And the only way, the only way you could do that is boundaries, agreements, and modeling. <laughs> We're modeling something. Yes. And it's got to come from other men. Yes. But we've never done that. We've always gone for violent confrontation. It's it's a new experience to be able to have. I mean, because we and we kind of don't have the forums where we can engage in that dialogue that we need. I I to, totally appreciate that that is the way to change. But I'm I'm pessimistic that we kind of lost uh, the tools we need to move forward. Well, we're having this conversation now. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, like I said, I don't think this is solved with a megaphone or a website or yeah. anything like that. I, I think it's these conversations. Because mm-hmm. maybe tomorrow you go, you know, I, I talked to somebody yesterday who had this idea, and I thought it was really cool. What do you guys think? And maybe you have that conversation with somebody who has it with somebody else. Yeah. I mean, have, I, I, I'd like to believe that. I, I would. I really would. I think uh, it's very hopeful. I like. I like to feel optimistic. Well, inside of every pessimist is an optimist. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a disgruntled optimist. Is it very sad? Sad yeah. optimist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shriveled I, I up just, in a corner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I I have my moments of feeling hopeless and feeling a lot of hope and it, de- it depends and I think for me it's about choosing my spaces carefully choosing out of a lot of spaces that I'm not interested in being and sometimes those are activist spaces sometimes there are people who I really admire who are doing work that's good but are taking an approach that is something that is too taxing for me mentally for whatever reason and I said I'm I need to work over here you know Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll visit over here or something like that. And there are whole circles that I don't need to be in. But but I, I hear you, John, about wanting to give kindness. And I tend to think that way myself. And I'm also more cautious about when I don't have the energy. You I know? don't either. Not necessarily. I don't also don't generally have the energy to be mean to people. Like I'm not in Twitter wars all the time, like ever, really. But I also sometimes I'm like, you know, if someone says something that's homophobic or racist or whatever, sometimes, sometimes I'll say something. I wish I could say something every time, but sometimes I just move away. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just not sitting near this person anymore. I just need to be out of the situation. Well, and I, I to trust my myself. battles too. Yeah. I trust myself for when I feel that. I also don't waste my time on people that are obviously not going to take a bite even a little bit. Yeah. I think you're creating good community in lots yeah. of ways. So I, And I can't do it by myself, though. Right. But I don't have to, because other guys are out there going, fuck, this sucks. I want to change. Let's all change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, I also think people are raising their sons to be better. Yeah. Like the little kids, the kids that are under 15 now. I, that's just the sense I get from parents that I know is that they're not all of them, but more of them than before. Well, the parenting movement right now is, is really focused on create connection with your children. Discipline is face is, is, has a face of, of kind and firm set boundaries. It's, it's very different. It's very different. It's built on like, let's build healthy children who have empathy and can, manage their emotional states and do self-regulate and understand mindfulness and calm. I mean, it's like, I have a two and a half year old, man. It's, there's a, then you know, (laughs) yeah, he's not quite ready for all that, but we do mindfulness. Yeah. No, it's like my friends with like kids who are, you know, eight, nine, six, they're, but they're little stories that they say about how their kids are and how they're, you know, how they chair and how they do things. It's very different than, for example, my stepchildren who couldn't share a television when they were that age. Right. Each had to get their own because there would be blood. And 
<sighs> I wish I had was able to be more involved in raising them, but there we there are. There you go. Oh, <laughs> very cute. It's adorable. Yes. And that is tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich. Okay, uh, classic. Staples <laughs> of life, yes. yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So, John, question. So, I hear you in terms of the need for change, specifically in regards to toxic masculinity. Masculinity in general, from a westernized perspective, is sort of very particular, very specific, right? A lot of things that we consider to be masculine and feminine in westernized culture are switched in other cultures, right? Totally. Right? So what I'm wondering is in your group, you know, you're talking about vulnerability and shame loops and, you know, recognizing the opportunities for shifting and opening up and expanding. But are you also identifying those positive aspects of masculinity that can be celebrated that people bring to the circle as well, if any? You know, are you recognizing those? And if you are, um, how are you guys celebrating that? We do. It, it is, it's exhausting to sit and look at all the broken shit. We do also go around the table and point out the things that are wonderful, and the things that are successes and the things that are victories in our life and the things that we're working on. This group of men shares intimately what their challenges are and also what their successes are. But one fellow is British. And that's always been interesting to me. Most of the most of the British people I know would not be comfortable with the level of vulnerability that this man shows up with, and that he's amazing. Yeah, we talk about we talk about the qualities that make us good men, whether that's good fathers, good husbands, good partners, good people. But it's it's probably probably a narrow slice of what's 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 approached. This group is close enough that, like I said, we hear about each other's challenges and successes and victories. So there is some conversation about it. I don't think it's it's not the primary focus, but we all know and love each other. So it's hard to not recognize each other in our greatness, too. And, you know, we see each other make mistakes. Hey, I did this thing and this, you know, I lost my shit in this situation. And here's how this went down. You know, that, that's a conversation that happens, too. It's funny you mentioned the masculinity and femininity shift. I was reading something the other day about how in America, men have their foot on the gas pedal sexually and women sort of hold the brakes. And that's a real broad generalization. In England, it's the opposite. Women have their foot on the gas pedal and men sort of control the, the pace or tempo of whatever sexual relationship occurs, if anything. They said in World War II, right, American men getting with British women and they'd get married and have 10 kids within a very short period of time. <laughs> I had never heard that one. <laughs> it follows though, right? That's funny. Oh, man. John, you used to say... I was involved in the um, pro-feminist men's movement kind of in the 80s and 90s. And now getting involved in uh, showing up for racial justice, the, the group organizing white people, I encountered a lot of men in their 30s, you know, who were kind of born right around that time, but really had 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 really well-rounded, you know, sensitivity and able to, like, monitor their own power and monitor their own participation in the group and be supportive of uh, you know, all of the genders, you know, having strong leadership in the group. It was, it was really lovely to, to kind of have been out of that space and, and show up there and just see so many men with just a lot of fundamental sensitivities. It was great. It's amazing. My first child, my son is 27. So he was born in 1993. In his generation of young men, they have a hundred percent less baggage than people my age. I'm 51. And a way better tool set because their mothers were daughters of women who basically invented the sexual revolution or were present for. So, I mean, there's like a snowball of here's all the things that are important for this generation to learn, especially the boys. And he, and he owns it. Like I talk to him all the time and like any, 
anything that you would consider a hot button topic about politics, sexuality, gender, anything, he is on the right side of it. And I've never even had to suggest to him. He and his peers, I mean, these are kids who have had the internet at home their whole lives. Nobody in this frame knows what that feels like. For them, it's as common as toasters. And they're connected, and they've figured things out, and they've looked up at people our age and said, we're not going to do that. Those guys are fucked up. And they've made their own way, and they've figured stuff out, and it's equitable. They understand consent dynamics without ever having to read a book or go to a seminar or anything. There are hope. I mean, there's sometimes I think about my own pessimism about the Trump stuff and politics. I think, well, this revolution is just going to be a bunch of funerals to settle. Because the young people aren't going to do this shit anymore. They No way are they going to participate in that. They don't behave like that. It's our generation that's behaving like this. People my age and older. Well, and we boomers have been catered to yeah. our whole lives. So we, we think that the way we do things is just the right way to do it. For white male colonizer, you've been right for 2,000 years. Yeah, I was about to say, because I ain't been catered to, but that's okay. That's a <laughs> you know, I'm, I wish I could yeah. sign on board that shit. You know, J.D., yeah. I was thinking earlier, you were talking about science and religion. You know, at the beginning, science and religion were indistinguishable. Yeah, natural were, philosophy. Yeah, they were they were siblings, if not the same child. Mm-hmm. I think religion got competitive. Uh, maybe they both did. Maybe. Yeah. Hey, you used a phrase a while ago that I want to remember. It was something like male competition syndrome or something. But what I heard in my head was the never-ending pissing contest. Male competition dynamic. Dynamic. Never-ending pissing contest works, too. I mean, don't get me wrong. There, There's female competition dynamic out there as well. Oh, God. <laughs> it's just not yeah. my wheelhouse. Well, I see it in, in middle school girl students. The, the, just the, well, I, I don't know how to describe it except competition, but it, it can be vicious. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, in this mm-hmm. conversation. It's been really cool, J.D. and John and Cedric Maurice. And thank you for your insights. And this is just really good. Really good. I really like <laughs> answering questions on the fly. That's fun. <laughs>